Thank you, Thomas Reuss. Also a great thank you to St. Anne's College for the invitation to speak to you here. The idea of the university as a place for free and open academic debate is a very European idea coming from the Middle Ages when it started in Bologna and Paris and here in Oxford, receiving students and teachers from all over Europe. So it's a great honor for me to participate in this debate here. Let me add a disclaimer. This is the first time I'm speaking publicly in the United Kingdom after leaving my mission as ambassador in London and retiring from our foreign service. So I speak only for myself. I do not speak for Germany. <laughs> That makes me very free. The European project was the answer to the destruction of Europe in two world wars. It supported the stabilization and reconstruction, and it strengthened the cohesion of Western Europe during the Cold War. Later, most former communist countries became members. This helped to stabilize all Europe. Prime Minister David Cameron spoke at Bloomberg's in London on January 23, 2013, when he said that peace project was no longer the main topic for Europe because it had successfully fulfilled its historic role. I found this rather premature. The European Peace Project is still very important and may even become more so with the new challenges coming up in the East. But the Prime Minister was absolutely right, stressing that the main purpose of the EU now is bringing more prosperity to the people. The single market must be further developed and the efficiency of the Union must improve. The Commission is too big, the regulation is not always convincing, the European Parliament is too far away from their voters, and still it has no right to initiative for legislation, which is in the hands of the Commission. Enlargement was very important, but the European institutions did not adapt well to the consequences of the great increase of the number of member states during the last decade. So it's understandable that the EU has recently introduced a new criterion for the accession of new members, that the EU itself must be in a shape that it can adopt a new member without endangering its own stability. However, on a day-to-day -day basis, the European institutions are functioning. They work for us every day and they shape our daily life much more than many people know. EU trade policy is needed for a strong Europe in a globalized world. The competences of the Commission give Europe a strong voice in international trade negotiations. It is only the EU Commission and no national state that has the power to see eye to eye to the United States or China. We look forward, by the way, to the free trade agreements with Canada and the United States of America. If we get a good deal, this may create more new jobs than any protectionist subsidy. Germany and Britain should support that. Germany and Britain are both committed to a strong climate policy. The EU was a leader in the climate debate in the last decade. Europe needs a common position on this, or it will lose all influence on the future global climate policy. Energy security has now become a serious issue for Europe, especially for Eastern Europe. Russia has been a very reliable partner for energy supplies to Western Europe, even in the worst days of the Cold War. But now Russia is flexing muscles. So it shouldn't be surprised that this leads to proper reactions. Democracies may be slow, but they react. And Germany and Britain should work closely together for better energy security. The common agricultural policy, CAP, has been popular with farmers, much less with other sectors. 
But without going into any details, I only want to stress that the CAP has undergone deep changes during the last decade. And let's not forget, the CAP brought Europe a food security it never had for centuries. There was hunger in Europe, always and all abounding. The structural and cohesion funds give lower-income countries within the EU a chance to catch up, improving their infrastructure and conditions for productive investment. Germany and Britain were always more on the giving than on the receiving side. That is solidarity and not a reason for asking money back. The single market of 500 million customers is at the core of what makes the EU successful. Enterprises need a level playing field with the same set of rules where standards are harmonized or mutually recognized. The single market comes at a price. A level playing field needs regulation and control. Capital moves to where it gets most return on investment. Countries with costly social systems attract people and deter capital. Some arbitrage on investment conditions inside the EU helps competition. But it must be fair competition. Tax arbitrage by member states using subsidies from the EU to pay tax breaks to attract investment away from other member countries is not fair. Neither is social arbitrage or environmental arbitrage. We need a common European foreign policy. The world has always been a dangerous place. The crisis in Ukraine or the ISIS attacks in Syria and Iraq are actual examples, but we shouldn't forget all the other conflicts around. New challenges have grown by international terrorism and extremist movements, by piracy or outright transnational organized crime. We need more common answers to the global stress. In name, the common European foreign policy and foreign and security policy is already in place. The High Representative is served by an external action service of the EU with ambassadors abroad. But the foreign policy is mainly made in the capitals of the member states. It is not probable that national states in Europe will soon give up their right to decide on war and peace. Europe must pool its power and influence on issues where consensus exists or can be reached. We have to be realistic on that. The recent reversal of Russian policy has revived a feeling of threat in Europe. Some Russian nationalists may be proud to be feared. The consequence is a progressive breakdown of trust. This makes a common policy of the EU towards Russia an imperative. NATO is still a necessary alliance. Strengthening EU-NATO cooperation is getting urgent in the actual situation. And I think we have to tell Ankara something about that. Member states who experienced Soviet power ask for our solidarity, and we are obliged to support them. At the same time, we have to be very careful not to embark on any irreversible path of escalation of words and deeds. There are certainly uh, great achievements in Europe, which Britain does not take part in it. For example, to travel in the Schengen area from Finland to Portugal without stopping at border controls, without customs officers looking into your luggage. And you can imagine this is very, very popular on the continent. It's a pity for Britain not to be in it. Anyway, when the single market started, Germans were asking how this could work without a common currency. The Bundesbank saw a common economic and financial policy as a prerequisite of any common currency. The majority, including Chancellor Helmut Kohl, thought that introducing the euro first would make a common economic policy unavoidable. You may 
struggle about who was right, but the close link between currency and financial economic policy has been corroborated by the recent developments. And the economic and financial crisis of 2008 brought to the surface where the European institutions were too weak. The trouble about the euro is mainly rooted in the fact that national financial and budgetary policies were not compatible with the common monetary policy. The need for structural reforms became obvious. And by the way, in times of huge youth unemployment, the single market also needs flexibility for workers who must be willing and able to work in all parts of the single market where jobs are available. They deserve open doors. Certainly, there are things where Europe is not perfect. The Brussels bureaucracy is a beloved target for anti-European movements. We should not forget that the rather small European bureaucracy, much smaller than the London bureaucracy of the city of London, consists of the best and brightest from all member states and not of aliens from space. So bashing them is a bit dangerous. In his speech at the Conservative Party conference, the Prime Minister said that he does not need the EU to decide what strength the vacuum cleaner must have in England. Sounds good. But he should have mentioned that this makes British vacuum cleaners sell all over Europe because they keep European standards. Either we have a single market with single rules or a fragmented market with national standards returning. Let me stay with the example for a moment. What would happen if Britain would not be in the EU anymore? The EU Commission would, under certainly some free trade agreement or so, send the British government its rulings on vacuum cleaners, and the government must ask Parliament to copy this into British legislation. Parliament is free to decide no, and the EU then free to stop importing non-conformant vacuum cleaners. The government could recommend British industry to sell vacuum cleaners outside the EU, maybe to China. Good luck. <laughs> the, industry, the industry, most of them transnational companies, would just leave the UK to produce on the other side of the channel. The commission was recently not too sensible sending Britain a bill after recalculating the membership fee without much political preparation, although civil servants from Britain knew quite well what came. But the whole mechanism, how the contributions are calculated, how they are recalculated by some time, is the consequence of a very complicated system introduced after Margaret Thatcher successfully got her money back. This is a calculation and recalculation on the rebates and all of this, and this has to be recalculated several times. So there is certainly uh, only half the truth which I hear in Parliament here. The need for more redistribution anyway is also a consequence of the accession of some rather poor countries. I was never against this accession. I think it was correct to have it. And it was very much pressed for by several British governments. But then, say, let them enter and not pay the bill is not fair. In Britain, there is a permanent confusion of the free movement of European citizens with immigration from outside of the European Union. European citizens are not immigrants. The four freedoms of movement for people, goods, services, and capital have nothing to do with immigration. They are rights coming from the core of the EU treaties. A small minority not wanting to work is also attracted. They are attracted in Germany as well as in Britain by social benefits. I'm sure German or British citizens never have this strange idea to take social benefits without having the right to have it. But 
I must say this can be handled by legislation, but not by throwing the baby out with the bath. The German magazine Der Spiegel said last week that Chancellor Merkel had a row with David Cameron on this, saying that she couldn't support him on EU reform if he continued to question the foundations of the Union, and the free movement is such a foundation. I don't know what was really said. Normally, they speak very friendly with each other, and, uh, but one should take this for very, very serious. It is common knowledge that there is a democratic deficit in the EU, but there are very different views on what this deficit really is. The German Constitutional Court, for example, believes that the European Parliament is not fully representative until it has an equal representation of all voters in Europe. Somebody who comes from Germany needs more than double the vote than somebody who comes from Malta or from Estonia. Some criticize that the EP has only limited rights to nominate the persons for the highest office and that the unelected bureaucrats in the commission are civil servants in Britain elected, I don't know, very few. <laughs> they are not responsible to the parliament. Others complain that intergovernmental methods often prevail over community method. So if you hear about a democratic deficit, it is mostly right, but very, very different views where it really lies. Let's face it, Europe is not perfect, but why? It is not perfect because the member state did not want it to be perfect. Very easy. However, the EP elections of 2014 for the first time had top candidates of the main party families. The main party families are no longer represented in Britain, by the way, only by one party because the Conservative Party left the European People's Party in Brussels. But uh, I think the European People's Party was not lucky about that. Those who continue to insist on naming all the other commissioners by member governments certainly should not cry over a democratic deficit. It is not surprising that a severe economic and financial crisis brings down public support for the EU. The media blamed the EU for a two-week response to the crisis. Anti-Europe parties benefited from the mood also in the European elections of 2014. It is interesting that on the continent, most anti-European parties come from the extreme right of the political spectrum. Very few, also outright neo-Nazis, others from the extreme left. It would be dangerous if the established parties feel tempted to take over part of their agenda, hoping to win back voters. I don't think that the extremes will win elections, but taking over their agenda is a danger. There is now a new German Eurosceptic party called Alternative für Deutschland, Alternative for Germany. The AFD is stressing that it wants to abolish the euro, but not the EU. The party started as a kind of an elite project criticizing elite Europe of professors of economics and former big business people. Now they are struggling because they have an entryism at this moment from the extreme right who are attracted by nationalism. So AFD is not represented in the German parliament, but they won seats in the European parliament elections. Ideologies and convictions, right or wrong, influence our view of the world. That's a fact. And after Second World War, at least in Germany, nationalism was discredited. Many found it impossible to identify with the divided German nation after the crime of the war and the Holocaust. Nationalism now is growing again in parts of Europe, and I hope that nationalism does not become the prevailing ideology of the 21st century. We all know there is a certain feeling of crisis of the legitimacy of the democratic parties and parliaments. 
However, we should remember the sentence of François Mitterrand, former French president. He had two, two words only, nationalism kills. And look at the Balkans, look to the east, it is still true. At one point, the British Prime Minister David Cameron has made clear that it would be a pity to give up what was united for such a long time, to give up a strong position as a relevant power in this world, and to give up the common currency. Thus, he spoke about Scotland before the referendum took place. The German newspaper quoted him and asked if the same is not true for Britain as part of the European Union. Britain joined the ever closer union only in 1973 without, even at that time, a national consensus on the question how far the country could and should give up part of its sovereignty. Just after British accession to the EU, the Labour Party renegotiated and then campaigned for Europe. Later, Margaret Thatcher renegotiated and then campaigned for Europe. Now we have one part of the Conservatives who want to renegotiate again and another part who, together with UKIP, just want to leave the Union. It is absolutely legitimate to criticize the policies of the EU. It is legitimate even to fight for leaving the club. The debate on Europe needs respect for different opinions, but what I want is also respect for facts. And lamentably, facts are often replaced by prejudice. Some British newspapers with huge circulation have hammered in anti-European prejudices for 30 years, and this has an effect. Few politicians dared to stand up against this demagogy. The negative attitude towards Europe is self-reinforcing and is often underestimated how from a small beginning a big rift may emerge over the time. Maybe chaos theory is a good description for all of this. Whatever the result of the next British election next May, the topic of Britain's position in and towards the EU will not vanish from the agenda. If the Conservatives win, the way out of the EU is a real possibility. If David Cameron really wants to stay in the EU and if he wants to reform the Union, he will find allies, and not least in Germany. But is he really looking for allies? Or will he insist on positions who would destroy the foundations of the EU and the single market? The fear of UKIP seems to have crept into the veins of all the parties, possibly less to the Liberal Democrats. If Labour wins the elections, the Conservative opposition could move to a more anti-European position. Will Labour be able and willing to stand up against such a trend? Whatever the outcome, it has to be respected. It is not us who will decide. It's the British people who will decide. But I say respect does not exclude regret. One of the most dangerous political moods I have seen in different countries has been important in Germany for some time, it's important in Russia now, and it comes up a bit in Britain, is victimism. It seems that part of the Tories and the interested press are fomenting the image of Britain as the poor victim suffering from all the others on the continent ganging up against Britain. If you read the papers, this is the picture. Nobody in Europe is ganging up against the United Kingdom. It's just not true. And nobody wants to isolate Britain. The dividing lines in Europe in the debates can be very different, depends on issues. There may be an east-west, a north-south constellation, rich-poor, industrialized agrarian, deficit lovers against austerity preachers, big against small or others. But Britain against the rest of all is either a phantom or Britain's own choice. Britain has always been an important player in all constellations. If there is 
a limited influence. It is self-inflicted self-isolation. The British-German relationship has become very crucial in this situation. It is good that during the last decade, or at least the last four years, we strengthened the mechanism of German-British dialogue. Many complaints about over-regulation, too much EU activity in fields which should be left to member states or even regions are shared between the two countries. Germany has seen Britain as a potential ally for pressing the EU to go further in its efforts to become more efficient. Britain and Germany have more in common than many know. And Chancellor Merkel was certainly somebody who always wanted Britain in the EU and not outside. But there are illusions how far Germany and Chancellor Merkel can support British views on change in Europe. If the price for keeping Britain in the EU is destroying the core ideas of the European project, then this price will just be too high. The British policy of distancing itself from Europe has, by the way, strengthened Germany's relative position in Europe. Some even fear German hegemony. I think that there's one country which fears rising German power more than any other country, and that is Germany itself. Stephen Green gave his excellent recent book on Germany, the title The Reluctant Meister, description of the German fears. And that is why Germany wants to continue the way to the ever closer union, why Germany insists on the EU. I read this for four years now. It is not. The idea is now what will Europe do in the future? Where will Europe go? The idea of a federal United States of Europe was very popular in the six member states in the 1950s. It had never been a very realistic view. But after several rounds of enlargement, this idea is just dead. The heroic fight against the European superstate I hear here sometimes is fighting a ghost, and I think you can leave that to the visits in Hogwarts. When the EEC was founded, Britain formed the EFTA free trade area, and maybe that's the future. But then we had the effect that the EU was a successful motor of the economy, while EFTA, not having institutions to do this, was no solution for Britain's structural problems. This was why, in 1973, the UK joined the EEC. And now some seem to come back to EFTA as a choice. I doubt the outcome would be any better than it was before 1973. <laughs> Europe of different velocities, yes, that's already a reality. It means that some member states join new steps of integration later than others. The principle that all rules are valid for all member states is kept, but the timeline is more flexible. Europe with different geometries also a reason. It means not all rules must be the same in all member states. Some difference is tolerable for each country. Members that permanently opted out of certain integration steps construct these different geometries. It's a bit that way. While different velocity is on the timeline, different geometry takes place in the territorial space. The Schengen system and the euro are examples of both different geometries and different velocities at the same time. And some will enter the systems later, others permanently opted out. The British government made a big effort to study the balance of competences. I think this was a very important effort, although a bit misguided, but anyway, a good effort. Because it was about which problems must be resolved on what levels of decision. It's a question not only for Europe, it's a question for the British, you know, after the 
uh, question of the famous Midlothian question and all these things, we have the same in Germany and other countries. But there are much more balances to be observed. The balance between interests, states, pressure groups, social classes, the balance between regions and central states, between majorities and minorities, the balance between legitimacy of sovereign countries and the legitimacy derived from popular vote. There is no simple answer to the balancing problem. Different geometries must be balanced by rules for mutual recognition. Different velocities must be balanced by timeline, how and when differences are superated. Different options can normally only be balanced by strong commitment to the European project. There has to be one basic balance between stability and flexibility. If stability gets too rigid, the system cannot adapt. If it gets too flexible, the system will be destroyed. So let me try out some ideas. It's really a try-out, and it's not very developed. What I think could be done. I think, at this moment, the EU needs more flexibility. Since membership in the EU is voluntary, an exit must be possible, yes. But stability would be destroyed if you would allow to exit and re-enter every four or five years, depending on electoral results. Different geometries and different velocities should not be ruled out. But what is agreed has to be kept and is not under the reservation of renegotiations. Flexible options should be possible, but they must guarantee a stable relationship. A model of Europe a la carte would be bureaucratic, complicated and uncalculable and in the end self-destructive. Just imagine you are sitting in a company and have to take all the rules and then more rule books on exceptions than you have rules. I fear that a balance between stability and flexibility, on the other hand, may not be possible today to strike under the rule of one and only one form of membership anymore. Many countries, most of them inside the Eurozone, feel a need for an accelerated integration and enhanced cooperation and solidarity. Core Europe in that sense is not a question of geography, but of political orientation. But there are other positions about the future of the European Union, and whatever these positions are, a kind of fundamentalist call for all or nothing will always damage our common interest. To be rigid may be the best guarantee to get nothing. In history, we need time and patience. Therefore, I really call always against these all or nothing positions. We should not force those who have a different view to choose between all or nothing, if variable geometry and variable velocity help, this should be used. But there may be at least one member state, Britain, and I add at least one country applying for membership, Turkey, that both have an understanding of sovereignty, deeply rooted in history, nothing illegitimate, that needs possibly more flexibility than any core Europe could give them. It would be a grave error to leave the exit, the exit as the only way out. So what could we do as a compromise? Because we always live with compromises in Europe, sometimes foul compromises, but working compromises. We may need a flexible membership coexisting with core Europe. It would offer a way to stay in the Union or even enter the EU for countries which cannot accept to give up more sovereignty in an ever closer Union. The existing acquis, the rules which are in place, should be kept wherever possible, 
why throw away the achievements of the last 60 years? But each flexi-member, as I call them, may negotiate a different and more flexible treaty for this kind of membership. So flexi-members should fully participate in all meetings. They stay at the table with full vote whenever the agenda is about questions where they chose to fully participate. They stay inside without a vote, but with a voice, where this is not a case. They only have to stay outside whenever there is a conflict of interest between flexi or core members. There cannot be any veto of flexi members anymore on more integration for core members. Flexies, as I call them now shortly, <laughs> would have more influence than any of the European Economic Zone member states have today. Therefore, it may be attractive for Norway and Switzerland to upgrade to a flexi membership. It may be comfortable for Britain to get more flexibility without leaving the Union. At a interesting for potential members like Turkey to become flexi-members because giving up more sovereignty than they believe they can afford may be very difficult in the negotiation. That's at the core of all the difficulties. What can you do? You may often hear the criticism that Europe is an elite project. Hopefully here are many between you who may be the future elite of Europe. So... I think nobody should be ashamed of being a lead. The European Union will not become a popular project if the elites do not make it their own project. And the others who are here are also very important. These are the future global partners of the EU. And you should bet on the EU. It has a future, a great future. And I appeal, take Europe as your project, make it more popular, build up a European public opinion by debate, by talking about it, by making it public. And it is really taking effort and time, but try to convince that solidarity and sticking together is good for everybody, for England and Scotland, as well as for UK, Germany and the European Union. Membership's voluntary, but being in the club means keeping the rules. Everybody has the right to leave, but let it be consistent. Nobody can have full benefits of the club not being a full member. Our future is in Europe, good or bad. Building a better future together needs permanent critical review. Blaming Europe just for national deficiencies may be popular, but is utterly unfair. Let's stop that. There's no free lunch. Europe means compromise, and compromise means everybody must lose a little bit to make Europe the great winner. That has worked quite well for the last 60 years, and I insist flexibility is better than to risk the whole project by rigorous positions on all sides. The way to a better Europe will be difficult and stony, but it's worth the effort.